Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. How's it going, everybody? And have you read Sutter Kane? Oh, man, you actually, you took the question I was going to pose to you. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's Oh, no, that's what are we going to do for our opening segment? Yeah, I had the impression lined up and everything, but we can just, we can just cut in the audio from the, uh, from the clip. I'm sure it would have been embarrassing anyway. Okay, we'll do it right <laughs> now. Do you read Sutter Kane? An absolutely great question. I think really iconic for the movie that we're talking about today, uh, In the Mouth of Madness. Um, one of John Carpenter's, uh, maybe uh, from his weaker era, you'd say in the '90s. Uh, not not necessarily as many wins or or, uh, or or hits as in his early area, but I think this is one of the stronger ones. Well, as one of the more dominant filmmakers of the 1980s, it was going to be a tough decade for him to live up to. But I think into in the mouth of madness definitely has some redemption qualities for him as a filmmaker and really proved that he could still make movies at this point in time. But we're going to dive into this movie real deep today on the pod. Uh, we have a great scene picked out specifically for our October coverage of John Carpenter movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to say, though, before we really get into it today, it's really nice being here with you in person. It's uh, yeah. our first ever in-person recording of the podcast due to pandemic restrictions. So uh, it's nice to see your face, Tim. You too. This should be fun, but we'll see. Who knows? Maybe we're just going to be stepping over each other a lot more because it'll be more of a natural conversation. That might be more of <laughs> our usual style, but we'll find out. Not like the polite Zoom, wait until you're done speaking kind of thing. It's definitely a muscle that we've developed over the last 18 months. I agree. But we'll, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and I mean, to start off, I did just want to uh, pose that question. Do you read Sutter Kane? Because I actually think it's really thematic to the horror genre in general. I really like reading it as the idea of being, do you read Sutter Kane? Do you watch horror movies? Do you take the chance? Because I think that's one of the themes that are at play in here. You have a lot of people who are saying they either read Sutter Kane or they don't. The ones who don't say they don't have the stomach for it. And I think that's what you find with other movie watchers a lot is, do you like horror is a question that you have to ask about the genre. You don't have to ask it about comedies or romances or dramas. There's certainly some big questions being thrown by Carpenter here as a director and as a filmmaker about like the bigger questions of what an artist and or the person who controls what you see has to offer. And I think that you're probably really onto something there by saying that this is him, his way of asking, like, are you into this kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. Are you into horror? Can your mind handle it? And yeah, he's, the question in the movie kind of takes on this extra meaning because if you can handle it, then you're in bigger trouble. Yeah, it's really like, will you take the risk? And I think that's a smart way of um, sort of coding the idea of how people have difficulty with horror movies because a lot of people I know, they don't want to watch horror movies because they're too scary because they know they will give them nightmares or they will stress them out. They'll give them paranoia. These are things that people struggle with. And so I love the idea of in the movie... It's about Sutter Kane. It's about a character. It's about it, it helps drive the plot along, but it touches on that. I think most foundational of considerations with the horror genre is: Are you willing to take the chance? Will you read this book? Will you watch this movie that might change your brain? That might change the way you see reality. That might cause you a couple sleepless nights. Yeah, you know, it's some horror movies are something that I, I'm pretty sure you are in, in the same boat. I've been watching these for a very long time. A huge chunk of my life has been dedicated to watching scary content that I know will probably give me a lot of uh, a lot of creative ways of thinking about the world in a darker way. Mm-hmm. And you have to be someone who's willing to take on that risk to, I think, get into it. But honestly, it's been so long, I, I don't even remember what it's like being hesitant going into a horror movie anymore. Yeah, that's the thing. It's definitely a callus that that develops um i was not like a child or a teenager who was really engaged in the horror movie scene uh i definitely too scary for me and then sometime in university i sort of took the plunge by doing the classic look up what are the best horror movies of all time and just sort of gritting my teeth and 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 getting through them and 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 then learning to love that you can be affected i think for me that's and I, this is not a unique thing, but this is the thing that I lock into is I love how they can affect me and I can 
I can put it together with the way that like, yeah, romances or dramas can, can make me cry or make me consider someone else's viewpoint. The way that horror can make me tense or make me worried about looking in the mirror or looking in the closet or walking through the dark hallway in my apartment that I know so well. I've grown to really love that. And I think it is, yeah, it's this callus that develops because at a certain point they stop scaring you and you start seeking it out again, right? Yeah, and so I, the reason why I think we need to even have all this con- pre-context about our horror, our relationships with horror is just because that's so much about what this movie is about. It's about kind of allowing your brain to fall victim to some of the more horrifying perspectives that can be given to you. And I want to talk a lot about things like mob mentality and mass hysteria today, but we also have a lot of great Lovecraftian influences in this movie. Mm -hmm. And I know you're kind of an expert on that subject. So we're going to be able to dive into this really deep today about what actually manifests when we watch a horror film. Mm -hmm. Because I know from a person, from just from personal experience and being very general on the subject, Horror has changed the way I see the world and impacts the level of darkness or imagination that I can put into something mm-hmm. um, that is a more traumatizing or horrifying subject matter, whether this is real world news or speaking entirely hypothetically about scary scenarios that could happen to you. Yeah, I, My mind is able to go to that next level, I think, whereas people who don't watch horror movies, I think that their brains prefer just not to enter that realm. I appreciate horror movies really personally because they either allow you to codify what is otherwise, um, I think, largely chaotic in existence, or they recognize that chaos. And I find both of that to be reassuring. It's like putting a face on the void, whether or not that's, you know, the Michael Myers, um, Bill Shatner mask, or, um, you know, indescribable creatures uh, summoned out of the ether by a German author or a German actor playing an American author. Right, yeah, Um, he's not German, is he? I don't think he is. There's a lot of accents being thrown around this movie without any context. But maybe let's uh, let's circle back and start from the top down, and then we can get into my you know my armchair expertise with Lovecraft, and we can talk about some some groupthink and some mass psychology concepts. Yeah, 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 that's what we're all here for today. Uh, And before I do dive into the bio one thing i did want to say is that if you're one of the viewers who listens to these before you watch the movie or especially i think this may be the case with our horror movies if you're someone who doesn't like horror movies but you're going to listen to the podcast anyway because it's in theory not going to be as scary i think this is a pretty accessible horror movie it's tense and it has scares but it's also goofy it has a 90s quality that i think takes the edge off of the entire production, whereas a couple scenes, especially the one we're going to talk about, they still have their tension. There's still some gross stuff. There's still some good monsters, but I don't think it's, I don't think this is a horrifying horror movie. I think it's a fun horror movie. Well, not that we have to dive too deep into it, but it is part of this like nineties post horror era movement. It's kind of like, uh, an era of horror filmmaking where, the genre was quite well established and the scares were pretty well established. So these movies in the nineties were kind of taking leaps to try and be more self-aware and Mm -hmm. reflexive and comment on that, the ridiculousness of what can happen in a horror movie sometimes. And I think this is no exception to that nineties formula. Yeah. It's definitely in line there with, uh, with scream and other, other movies like that. But To uh, dive into it, In the Mouth of Madness tells the story of John Trent, an insurance investigator tasked with tracking down best-selling horror novelist Sutter Kane. When the investigation leads both Trent and Kane's editor, Linda Stiles, to a presumed fictional town full of strange phenomena, the two begin to question their grip on reality. In the Mouth of Madness was directed by John Carpenter, written by Michael DeLuca, and stars Sam Neill, Julie Carmen, and Jürgen Prochnow, and was released on December 10th, 1994. It's currently available as a digital rental on, you know, most sources like Apple and Google. And that's really it. eh? That's the only place it's available. I don't know of anywhere to stream it. Hmm. So, I I mean, I was happy to rent it. I always love being able to throw four or five bucks towards, I mean, whoever's holding the rights, which is almost certainly John Carpenter. He likes making money off of residuals and off of remakes of his movies. Um, So, uh, you know, here's to you, John. Yeah, come on the pod, John. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, I feel like he's too busy uh, playing Xbox Live for that currently. <laughs> well, John Carpenter <laughs> is kind of a man of many trades, isn't he? He's a trained musician first and foremost. Yeah, and I'm gonna actually I will get to that with my shout out later today yeah. a little bit, but yeah, he's 
a very accomplished mu- musician and perf- I've known many people who have seen him perform live and say he's pretty amazing. I've heard really good things about it and and yeah, like he has he's an innovator in so many ways. Like when you if you're going to talk, you know, if you've never watched anything by him, you go and you check out Halloween, you'll see the foundation of an entire era of horror, but also the distillation of so many things that came before it. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely check out uh, we'll put in the show notes a link to the blank check podcasts uh, discussion on Halloween uh, on which their guest whose name is escaping me right now takes about a 20 minute diversion to talk about all the movies that came out over the two decades before Halloween that led up to exactly how Halloween worked and then moving from that point to what it influenced much like we, we kind of talked about Nausicaa and that how it was both a result of influences and an influence for so many other things. Well, I think the all these landmark films in film history have all come from an amalgamation of what came before it, kind of coming to a, a point where it's understood at such a level mm-hmm. that transcends everything up to that point in time. Yeah. Carpenter is just, he's a, he's a towering figure. He really did it his own way over and over and over and made some phenomenal movies and one of which you might not have seen i'd say compared to halloween and the thing and movies like that is uh in the mouth of madness which he didn't write uh it was written by michael deluca but i think it really fits carpenter's style um it's pretty cynical it's pretty pessimistic it doesn't think too highly of humanity and that's generally the impression you get from most of his movies especially the other two in what he has called this the apocalypse Uh, trilogy uh, just movies that end with the end of the world and all three of them don't have very kind things to say about what people do when they become afraid um, when they become uh, when they're pushed into a corner you know things like that yeah they are quite pessimistic but I guess in a movie like The Thing or yeah more in pr- The Thing than in Prince of Darkness or in this film mm-hmm. like it's uh, it's a lot less on the nose it's a lot less you know, like this is the end of the world. Mm-hmm. At the by the end of this movie, you realize just how, the level of cynicism coming from the di- point of direction mm-hmm. in this movie specifically. Yeah. So I think Carpenter got more cynical and pessimistic as time went on, as most filmmakers do. Yeah, without a doubt. If you've seen any interview with him, he does not hold back. That guy calls out other filmmakers. He he's not a big fan of De Palma. He talks about how readily he allows remakes of his movies because there's a great quote about him literally just saying. Oh, yeah, I let them do a remake, and then I hold out my hand, and there's a lot of money in my hand suddenly, right? Like, a a bit of, I'd say, a refreshing look at, like, an iconic artist, often just understanding that he's a part of an economy in the movie industry. I I totally agree with that. He understands his place in the big picture, and it's, I need my slice of the pie kind of thing, which, I don't know, makes sense on a very practical level, not usually... A behavior or attitude you see exhibited publicly by many of these directors but mm-hmm. i'm sure many of them do understand this and that's why you do see all these sequels and remakes and i can respect it reboots yeah i mean the fog got a remake uh right. it's got i think three percent on rotten tomatoes that was a terrible movie it's a horrible remake uh the thing got a remake which looked like it was going to be pretty good it was a remake <laughs> itself we should note though yeah oh that's true as well um but a remake of his version that was made with puppets and animatronics and all these great um, real effects. And then uh, the studio saw it and said, no, that looks dumb. Uh, replace it all with CGI and uh, just really cut the legs out from underneath it. Really didn't make the movie any better. That was like, what, 2010, that version of the thing? Something like that. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, yep, I think. Who's amazing in yeah. so many movies, but yeah, I don't think she could really save it. Yeah. Anyway. Carpenter is a really easy way to get off track, but I'd say uh, we can we can hop back over to In the Mouth of Madness. Yeah. We skipped over one of our favorite things to talk about, which is the tagline, which Do I didn't look up till last week? night when I was... Uh, well, the second one is my suggestion from oh. the movie. Um, I didn't look up the tagline till last night, and I was very happy with how like goofy and meta and fun it is. Uh, uh, and it's uh, lived any good books lately, which is... <laughs> Yeah, see, and that Just, that's the tone that the movie is setting for you. Yeah. It's not, like, something dark and ominous. It's very funny and self-aware. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where, I mean, you know, my suggested one I don't think would fit the tone as well because it's actually a really well-written line. It's got some good gravitas from it, mm-hmm. and I don't think it represents the, uh, the fun nature of the movie. 
but it's one of the lines that I like to I like to point out from it uh, from the the movie in general, which is that reality isn't what it used to be. I think yeah. it's a great line. I think it's a very succinct way of summing up like some of the end points of the movie. Mm-hmm. Which are, and this is like at, at the midway point too when this line is said. Yeah. So we should talk about Sam Neill. We should get into Sam Neill because our scene doesn't really involve him nearly as much as it involves Julie Carmen. Mm-hmm. So let's go into Sam Neill. What are your thoughts on seeing Sam Neill a year removed from Jurassic Park? It's wild to think that they're side by side. Yeah, back to back. They don't. Movies for him. They don't. They. they it, it's hard to see them that close together in my mind. And I mean, in general, in rewatching this a couple times for this episode. I've just grown to love this performance more and more. It wasn't like it was bad at the beginning, but it's something where you realize he's holding this movie together in so many ways. He really he's, is. In in scenes where he's working with other people, even Charlton Heston, who I think is is just kind of like Charlton Heston did what, like two days on this movie? I'd say one. Yeah. Um, and it was cool to have him in there, but like Sam Neill is bringing everything off the screen and making everyone better for it right he's he's a real asset to the other actors and and to john carpenter he seemed to really dive into this character and really Mm -hmm. embellish some of the dirtier traits about john trent Mm -hmm. um which i don't know we can talk so much about his character in this movie but it all comes back to like the spoiler of the ending yeah uh and i so i don't want to get too into that angle on it but his character is from a script perspective really holding some pieces together because I feel like as good as John Carpenter is as a director, this script by Michael DeLuca is, or well, it has some problems. It's, it's not great. No, there are some major stick, issues. It doesn't with, stick the landing is maybe the simplest way to put it. It has a great a premise. Yes. Premise it, it is so next messy. level. Very interesting. And in many ways, truly horrifying to me personally, but mm-hmm. I think the script is kind of a mess and it doesn't, it does a disservice to some of the finer performances in the film. But, but I think Neil Sam is, Neil's Neil is, is the reason you keep watching. Yeah. Right? Because there is, there is kind of a point around the third act where the movie kind of seems like the ending is a given. You kind of know where it's going. Yeah. Because you should. That's what's going on in this movie is that you see it's all been preordained. It's inevitable. And you have like a half hour of footage left to watch. And I don't think it really establishes like the grim inevitability very well i don't think you're tense because you know what's coming i think the only reason i'm enjoying that third act is because you're watching sam neil unravel yeah exactly Mm. and it's interesting watching a character stay so stubborn Mm. through after seeing so much which is it's just uncommon in a movie like this but it fits this character once again without the spoilers context but like it, his character is so perfectly crafted to be this level of naive and cynical because of his job and his profession yeah. as someone. Wait, so what is his profession again? So he's an insurance investigator. Yes, or he investigates fraud claims. Right. Um. So he is, and is good by at trade it. a skeptic, which is such a perfect choice for your protagonist in this movie about whether or not horror can jump out of media and start to influence reality he's always looking for tricks he's become successful because he's so good at figuring out when people are lying uh when people are colluding together um it's it's the perfect choice and also like it it lines up perfectly with the history of horror that's being touched upon through lovecraft and other horror stuff um it's a it's a really great choice to have him as an insurance investigator um, and he's very stubborn throughout the movie, and I think that lends a lot of tension. I love these movies where I think the idea when you watch a character that you know is already a goner or when the die has been cast and you watch them still struggling to figure out what things are or deny them, I think that adds a great layer of tension to these kind of things. And they are. this is a theme that's present in old Lovecraft stories. It's present in so many other horror movies it's it's almost just the idea of people you know going down a hallway towards a door to answer the door that you know the killer is at it's almost that same feeling i think it's so effective to watch him at a point where he's seen things and you've seen him see things that he has no explanation for he's looked monsters in the face and he's going these are great special effects they've got hidden microphones he's he's just unraveling slowly i think it's super effective arc 
Yeah, it there's like a clear point where he does kind of figure out that something's wrong, and I think it's only when that guy from the bar shoots himself, mm-hmm. and you're kind of like, that would be hard to fake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would because even up to that point, he sees the picture change before that too, the, and everything. The pictures has changed. He's seen some monsters, and he's tried to leave the town, and keeps going back into it. And he, there are these great sequences of him muttering under his breath about, you know, like trick trick pathways and that the signs are wrong and things like that um and i don't know it, it it always sort of prompts me to wonder as as you should when you're watching a horror movie is what would i do if i was in that position things like that and it's like yeah what point would like my acceptance fall into place where there there is no way out of this um this is what it is now and he holds on to it for so long i think it makes it really compelling at least for his character especially through a very messy third act. Yeah, and at, once the third act hits, I don't know, poor, the poor character of Styles is kind of removed from the movie. At least, like, the significance of anything she stands for is removed from the movie. It's pretty graceless where, yeah, again, like, sort of the the thing that you find out about the nature of this movie and the story at the end is just kind of used whole cloth to be like, that character's not in here anymore, and you know why. And it's like, I, I guess so. I guess. Yeah. So I do want to get into the Lovecraft stuff with you. Uh, yeah. A good transition might be thinking of Sam Neill's character as like the perfect kind of protagonist for a horror film, mm-hmm. right? And I guess like entering into that like spoilers of the ending territory, mm-hmm. Sutter Kane may have written the best character. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's film. the thing, right? So yeah, at, at the core of this film is that everyone in it is a character in Sutter Kane's book and it and it ends up being like this you know, Ouroboros of like Sutter Kane wrote the book that has the characters in. He wrote the book about him getting the book to the public, which becomes a movie. And then you're watching the movie all these great implications about whether or not you're watching something that could infect your mind. But to talk about both that and about how effective Sam Neill's role is in this, or I guess uh, his character's role, uh, John J. Trent, um, we can dive back and talk about Lovecraft so many horror properties are influenced by Lovecraft. This one is very on the nose in a number of ways. They make direct allusions and references to Lovecraft. Lovecraft was a early, um, uh, like an early figure in horror writing, um, you know, sort of in line with like Edgar Allan Poe, people like that who innovated a number of core, very powerful themes in horror literature. Number one being that like, you know, he's got a famous quote about fear of unknown, or sorry, fear being the most powerful emotion that man experiences and fear of unknown being the most powerful form of fear, right? So he he sort of, he innovated that. Um, he also was a part of the legacy of media as a source of horror, right? So, um, which was very of his era, mm-hmm. I should add. Yep, but also like so, there are there are plenty of instances of this. This is not something that he came up with, but it is something that he really he really um, clung to. Um, there's also there's a set of short stories called The King in Yellow uh, by uh, by Robert Chambers, um, which sort of refers to the idea of if you're reading this story, or it's a play, The King in Yellow. If you see it, it'll drive you insane, and. That's something that's obviously shown up in horror in so many other ways, like The Ring with the videotape. Um, True Detective references all of this. You would have heard of The King in Yellow before because of True Detective, but they also have their own illusion in it where Rust shows Woody Harrelson character a VHS of an unspeakable, unspeakable act being committed, which sort of galvanizes them towards the third act of that entire it it forever changes uh, the psyche of both characters Mm -hmm. actually but more more so woody harrelson's character yeah yeah and uh so this is a recurring thing and lovecraft really developed the idea of being a witness is maybe the worst possible role to have in a a a horrific situation right being a participant in a ritual has more agency and your your role does not have the implications that being a witness has because a witness has to watch what's happening and then they have to spread the word and they're changed because of what they saw so in lovecraft there's so many things where if you're looking at the old ones which are these monstrous gods who are older and grander and and beyond our understanding they drive you insane simply by looking at them yeah right 
which is kind of similar to fear of the unknown, but it's taking mm-hmm. it to somewhat of a different level because you're now talking about indescribable fear. Yeah. Which yeah. is kind of like it being unknown, but people ha- like who see it die from literally it being un- so unfathomable you can't yeah, register it's, it's, it. It implies our insignificance in the universe, that there are things at play that if we were to try to comprehend them, our minds would break. And humans don't like hearing how insignificant they are. Yeah. And so much of Lovecraft's works are predicated on the idea that someone, a scientist, a journalist, or an investigator, it's always someone who's seeking knowledge, finds more knowledge than they wanted. Or what they assume to be false, because it has to be false, because if it's not false, everything we know has been underwritten, is actually true. And that's John J. Trent's character. He's an insurance investigator. His whole job is to, is to find fraud. And then he's given this situation that obviously implies being falsified, being being a hoax set up to boost book sales. And as he digs into the into the center of it, he realizes not only is it all true, he's a part of it. He's been written into it the whole time. Again, if you're a character, you're very insignificant. You have no agency. Um, so there are a number of Lovecraftian themes that are at play in this movie, but also there are direct allusions. Um, in the Mouth of Madness refers to one of Lovecraft's most famous short story or a novella, uh, At the Mountains of Madness, which, uh, slight tangent, it was going to be made into a movie by Guillermo del Toro, and it never did, and that's a big loss for us. That would have been a phenomenal movie. In in the, the GDT exhibit that came to... Um, the AGO. The, the AGO they they had they had some concept art of like the penguins in in heavy quotation marks that would have been would have been used and it just phenomenal designs it's a real shame that we didn't get to see that it's a great short story i definitely recommend that one if you're looking to read one of these they're not terribly long but anyway um and then all of Sutter Kane's novels are references to Lovecraft stories so the whisper of the dark refers to the whisper in darkness the thing in the basement is the thing on the doorstep etc etc um the black church description is directly from the haunter in the dark and um later when uh, when styles is reading from in the mouth of madness the book as john j trent looks through the the ripped hole in the wall like a hole in reality she's directly quoting another lovecraft story the rats in the walls um, yeah i i read that actually that bit of mm-hmm. trivia and that's really cool to me because it's it felt like something that michael deluca could not have written yeah and <laughs> and i like that they i like that they recognize that like way earlier in the in the movie uh trent is talking to his insurance buddy after he had read a bunch of sutter Kane, and he's like you know they're pretty effective i don't know if it's his use of description and things like that and they're just directly talking about like you read a lovecraft story and they the 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 syntax and the way the the prose has an old classic feeling that you have to get a little bit past but once you do and once you're in it it does still kind of hook you there's a reason this guy is still remembered now it because the, he, the word lovecraftian is thrown around more now yeah. than i feel than in past decades too and there there's a there's a small number of movies that make direct references to lovecraft stuff like the void uh which is a recent movie uh things like that you know, it's also worth noting that H.P. Lovecraft was not a great person. Yes. There's some interesting reading out there about how his command and understanding of fear goes hand in hand with the fact that, like, he was a pretty horrible racist, which is something rooted in fear itself. He lived in Red Hook. He didn't like that other other people were moving into the area, and he was afraid of what it would mean for his community. And it 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 made him racist. So he's not a good person. It's a very terrible sort of uh, uh, culture around him. Uh, but the, the horror of his writing is, is undeniable. And undeniably influential. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, right along in line with that, I love that this all fits in. This movie fits into the legacy of New England as a source of American horror. Whether a la Stephen King. Yeah, Stephen King, Edgar Allan Poe, Lovecraft, said a lot of stuff in Providence and Rhode Island. Uh, even the witch and uh, the witch trials, they're they're all in this area. I love I love the idea that, you know, we could hop over the border and go for a drive and you could see the inspiration for this horror story, the inspiration for this horror story, that all these things like that. I, I, I love that there is this connection to the real world. Yeah, that was always what drew me to Stephen King's books. Mm-hmm. And when you see the, well, actually, we like we're going to talk about in our scene today, but when the characters arrive in Hobbs End, 
that almost that feels like such an iconic place. Unfortunately, I feel like that's one of the more underwritten parts of the movie when they're yeah. actually in this uh, idyllic American town. But which is Unionville here in Ontario? Yes, that's uh, that's in Markham, <laughs> Ontario, by the way. Um, yeah, I mean, just two other things to touch on for for Lovecraft that I think are important. Um, a common tenet of horror uh, culture is the idea that you know don't show the monster. If you're not 100% confident in it looking scary or or even if you are, you may be better served by not showing it because the audience the audience can picture something that's scarier to them in their minds. And that's something that Lovecraft was directly doing in his in his books where he'd just say something is indescribable. You cannot like and they talk about it in the movie where, where um, Sutter Kane just describes these creatures as being indescribable. And, and horrific beyond your understanding because you're, the reader's mind, the watcher's mind, the, the audience's mind is going to come up with something way scarier than you could if you were going to be specific about it. It's a, tr- it's a characteristic that I wish more horror movies would take nowadays because mm-hmm. I think that showing usually is the, showing the monster or the entity in question is usually the weakest part of most contemporary horror, I guess. is It's, but it's, all a, horror. Very, it's a very small number of movies where often they know enough to build the tension and not show you for a while and then when they do if it actually works like how many movies is that like alien yeah there's not many aliens the key one and they had hr geiger like drilling right down into our subconscious and what we're all afraid of to design that creature um but I guess in more contemporary movie like uh, hereditary did a really good job of not showing you anything uh really like uh no entity mm-hmm. until like kind of the end yep. where things start going to shit but mm-hmm. uh for the most part that movie is kind of just like unseen horror mm-hmm. happening to people and you're seeing the result of it but not the horror itself yeah so there there are like traces and fragments of all this lovecraftian stuff mm-hmm. uh, the, the, did, just did, the last yeah, one being that like the storytelling model is a direct Lovecraftian thing as well. Right, where, story with a story. So yeah, so many of his stories are you're reading letters that the protagonist wrote to you because they need someone else to know what happened. They need to know that this thing actually is real. These cultists are not frauds. This is actually happening, and then you're you then bear the burden of that knowledge. It's it's a and that and that ties right into this movie where when you realize what they're talking about, you're watching the movie that's about the book that made people insane mm-hmm. implying that you might go insane. It's a great way to draw the reader in. And it's just, yeah, the idea of having John J. Trent show up at the beginning of the movie, he goes to the, to the uh, insane asylum and then he recounts his story from there. Yeah. He goes back. It's uh, and even a the idea of him uh, device for Lovecraft, even him having to deliver the transcript then too, is kind of like removing the author from delivering the, mm-hmm the uh, medium yeah yeah it just adds those extra layers where i think it brings the audience in and makes you participant right they first they establish that this book this manuscript this letter this movie this song is a source of horror it will change your mind and then oh too late you're already you're already engaged in it you've already read sutter kane yeah You've, you've taken the chance it's too late so if this is going to drive you insane if it's going to um, if it's going to cast a curse on you, if it's going to get a, a drowned girl to come out of the well and come through your TV screen and kill you, it's it's already too late. That's right. It's it's a very potent part of this movie. And so if the if you've already watched this movie, then the answer to our opening question on the pod today is yes, you have mm-hmm. read Sutter Kane. Yeah. And so I mean, we're, that's enough of a I think a Lovecraft lecture um, for now. So. We can dive into, you had some points about some very real things, some very real <laughs> phenomena that, that can be very terrifying. Yeah, the, there's just like one aspect of the movie that really stands out to me every time, and it's probably what makes me keep coming back to this movie. It's probably my most rewatched Carpenter film aside from The Thing, actually. Maybe okay. Halloween, but I, I've re-watched, rewatched this movie like about 10 times. I'm a big Escape from New York fan. Ah, Escape from New York's also excellent, but don't watch the sequel. <laughs> Um, yeah, the big, the scary part of this movie to me, and I, when I say scary, I mean, not many movies are scary to me, but there are aspects of this film that are, 
And uh, the big one being uh, the idea of mob mentality or uh, groupthink, as some people mm -hmm. have come to call it, which is genuinely a frightening real world concept that's still, uh, you know, being studied. Uh, and it's, there's not a lot of very, not a lot of verifiable evidence to prove that it's factual, but there's enough evidence to prove that there is something going on when groups of people forge an idea through just gathering as a mass. Mm -hmm. um, and it's this idea of uh, losing the I, losing your sense of self-awareness to a point where you can take on entirely unique characteristics based on the group around you, not on your actual way of thinking or on the reality of the situation in front of you. Yeah, you can start to believe things you wouldn't have otherwise yes. simply by being in the proximity of it. And it's it almost implies the the supernatural elements that are at play in this movie where simply by reading the book or simply by being in Hobbes End, something something got out and it got the children first and then it got the adults. And it's beyond your control and it, it changes them physically, but in the real world to have people's psychology change simply by being in the presence of a crowd of people who are all moving in one direction is very scary. Yeah, and you know, it's not unheard of to hear of like one author kind of dominating the book market i think back to the harry potter days where mm -hmm. people were lined up outside of stores before every harry potter book release and you could argue that there was like versions and variations of mass hysteria in those clusters of people and maybe across the world in general for mm -hmm. those brief moments of time um, the point that i'm trying to drive home about this movie i guess is that it's inescapable and it leads to the end of the world and it's all derived from a piece of supposed fiction that so many people in the real world have just accepted as their reality that it becomes the reality which comes mm -hmm. back to the your your quote from the movie that you liked as the tagline actually mm -hmm. which i don't know to me this is about as scary as it gets because it's so uncontrollable and we don't know anything about how to control mass hysteria mm -hmm. or groupthink. well and that's what uh like Trent and Stiles have a conversation about it in the car on their way to Hobbs End. Yeah, actually right before our saying, scene. She's saying the scary part about reality is that it's something we agree on. So what if everyone agreed it was something else? What if you were the only one who knew what it was? Would it matter? Probably not. You'd be locked in a padded cell. And Trent, ever the skeptic, goes, no, that won't happen to me. And you've already seen it happen to him. Yeah. Which he did strategically because he realized the safest place for him to be was locked in a mental ward. That's right. Because he knew what was going to happen. I think this all like I love that it's a real concept that then it lines up with what you can assume Carpenter's view is a very cynical view of how weak people's minds are. Exactly. And how when they're when they when they have their resources taken away or their agency or the control taken away, they very quickly start pointing the fingers at one another a la the thing or um or or not helping each other, uh, which you have in Halloween. Um and it lines up with uh, with Lovecraft too. Just that, like when some, when we're presented with something that we can't handle, our minds break. That's right. And so all of this is to say that uh, there are some genuinely horrifying attributes of this movie. And yet, we did discuss at the beginning how it's also got some like bits of humor and stuff intertwined with all this horror. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think maybe now's the time that we get into the scene. Yeah, absolutely. So. Our scene for today takes place at 31 minutes into the film and goes to about 35:45, so we got about a five-minute, 45-second scene here. And this is the scene of arriving in Hobbs End, but the journey to Hobbs End begins with Styles and Trent driving through the night, a very inky black night, I might add, to find the fabled town of Hobbs End. Uh, while Trent sleeps, Styles drives and encounters a young boy riding down the highway on his bike. Moments later, she sees another similar figure, although much older, on a bike going the opposite way. The boy then appears a third time, this time being struck by the car, and Trent and Stiles are forced to stop to check out the body. The boy, crawling on the ground, cries out, I can't get out, I can't get out, and he mysteriously then gets up and rides away. Stiles continues driving, experiencing some other supernatural phenomena before landing on a covered bridge that leads them right into Hobbs End and scene. Trust me, we are going to get into details. Yeah, no, I think the scene, there's not, in many ways, there's not a lot to it, right? There aren't crazy effects. There's no puppetry, animatronics, things like that. But I do think it's a great example of like what made Halloween so effective, which was simply understanding what you can do with the camera, how some sound design 
a lack of a score and a couple a couple shots all combined together can create creepy vibe something that can just make you tense because you're losing a bit of control and you're seeing you're just seeing these images that I feel like they they drill right down into your base fears. Um, there there's some things that I can picture very easily from this, like the the kid's face disappearing in the taillights. Yeah, I love that shot. It's so good, and there's almost like there's almost nothing to it, right? No, and it it, lo- it looks like real lighting. Like there's mm-hmm. no additional light other than like a taillight fading away on him. It's not like even like they're trying to mm-hmm. make sure he's illuminated in any way. It's yeah. very grounded. Yeah, it's a combination of all these factors that I think really calls calls up the idea of driving at night and you don't really know where you're going that's that's the heart of the fear for mm-hmm. me in this scene yeah especially when you get on those unknown. roads where they just don't when you when you hit that that odd road that doesn't have any street lights and and you're like oh yeah like I've, I've driven this in the daytime i've been here before you know i'm in a car i have my seatbelt on i'm safe but like there's just that extra layer of darkness and in this this movie is is very well um I don't know, uh, produced in that, like, the blacks are, are great blacks. Very important to the scene, as you said, super inky. And it just creates this very isolated feeling for Styles, who's driving. Um, Trent is asleep. And you just, there's a lot of just intercutting of her reacting to things that she sees or things as they disappear and drop away. And uh, I don't think we're meant to think that she's suffering any kind of mental breakage here. This is, like, the real world mm-hmm. uh, entering into a supernatural spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, because as you move into Hobbs End, you move from reality into this quasi-reality that has not broken out yet. Because again, the book has to come out of Hobbs End to start bringing what's in Hobbs End out of it. So I love that when tackling the idea of how do you enter this fictional town that shouldn't be there. It's like, well, it's got to be at night. You're going to see some weird stuff. And then you'll show up. And it's like this this buffer of um, phenomena. And so there's an implication of like a time loop happening with the mm-hmm. kid on the bike who then becomes like John Carpenter riding a bike. Yeah, he looks just like John Carpenter. <laughs> yeah, somehow they made a wig on the kid, put a wig on the kid to make him look like John Carpenter. And the makeup is not good, but it's passable. I wanted to bring that up. I feel like based on the few bits of horror movies I saw when I was a young kid, like I saw Candyman when I was way too young and it ruined my sleep for a couple nights. Um, you see these things with older with makeups that would have been current when you were that age. Do they have an effect on you anymore? Cause I find that like, there's almost a nostalgic creepiness to them. Something about this one. I definitely can vibe with you on mm-hmm. that. It's super waxy. There's way too much like of a cavity at the eyes. Right. Yeah. Like there's so like much of it that doesn't work. Yeah. It's, it's wet and it's waxy, but like it creeps me right out when yep. you see like, again, like they set the stage so well with the kid, You've got the sound of his pedals because he's got like the baseball cards mm-hmm. um, uh, clipped to clipped to his back wheel. And you've got the reflectors on the pedals that are picking up the headlights. And then, yeah, he disappears in the red light. And then he shows up again. All the factors are the same, except he's got this big mane of white hair. And, and he's coming the opposite way this time. Yeah. And you, ha- you have this idea that this is someone in like a, an inevitable loop. But then mm-hmm. when they actually hit him with the car and he says i can't get out i can't get out and he's like speaking in a child's voice with this old man face Mm -hmm. it's pretty it's quite perturbing yeah it's 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 great direction it really it throws you off and then there's the great scene or the scene the the great sequence right after that where styles looks away for a second and when she looks back the kid's on the bike and he like gives her like a creepy smile yeah and then just like takes off again still don't understand what that's all about no no, I, I honestly like I'm I'm really on board for when they're just kind of like this is going to be unexplainable yeah this is something that's you, why it passes for me yeah, but I still don't understand what that moment yeah, is supposed is, to this say this is something you have to experience yeah. and you won't know what it means and that's it and I think I, I, I especially I think the current era maybe we're just moving out of was a lot of movies being made by people who grew up looking for plot holes which is a bad way to watch movies right that's you're not going to have a good time so it's great now that like i think we're getting back into movies that are that are happy to be unexplainable inexplicable um and weird and throw a monkey wrench into your understanding of the plot because it's rare to find that uber grounded movie that mm -hmm. is enjoyable yeah and then but like jumping back stuff like this where where they're just like 
you can just see Carpenter and or DeLuca being like, this is creepy. Like, we need to do something for as they enter Hobbs End. And it shouldn't just be the second half of the scene where right. it's very much like a supernatural point of travel. Let's throw something else in. And they made what I think is maybe one of the two most iconic parts of this movie. It's like this and the scene with the agent that we quoted yeah. at the very beginning. And the first half hour of this movie is outstanding. Yeah. It's so strong. And it starts off with a bunch of impactful, heavy hitting scenes. Some scary, some funny, some action packed. And then you have this scene that to me just cemented me into my seat when I first mm-hmm. saw this movie. And I watched this movie maybe for the first time about eight years ago mm-hmm. and it just has forever been like a scene in my head and part of it is the inserts i want to talk to you about the yeah. inserts because you already mentioned like the cards like mm-hmm. the the playing cards mm-hmm. in the spokes of the tires that make like the motorcycle kind of sound mm-hmm. and it's a super nostalgic uh, image it's a it's a visual that associates us with the time in the past when kids used to do that it's <laughs> and very Stephen ride King. bikes yeah <laughs> Um, very stand by me yes it's really steve it's a stephen king thing and you kind of get the sense it kind of implies that the kid was from a different like from an older era not mm-hmm. from like the 90s entering this town so that was well, cool you get the idea that yeah maybe he's been doing that for 40 years like, exactly whatever whatever uh setter kane has written is like reverberating back which is terrifying mm-hmm. but there's like this excellent insert shot that's like I think you mentioned before we started recording, they probably just shot on the black soundstage and they just pan the camera across the bike tire, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a really nice mobile smooth shot and, and really they, they tight. They do that in, in reverse ways. They'll do it right past Styles' face, yes. the kid as he's 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 like uh, he's pedaling, and then in the old makeup, like there's this great where they just yeah, it's this jet black soundstage, and they get all these inserts, and the inserts are so effective. Yeah. Same same with the scene with the agent too. There are tons of inserts of like the like uh, coffee cups flying and like breakfast platters right. and stuff like it's a very important uh, but also seems like pedestrian way of filming these sequences but they all they all build together to to make a great effect yeah close-ups are not used the same way as they were mm-hmm. by like this old, older guard of filmmakers yeah. they that really relied upon them for meaning creation and, it would be uh, so onerous though right you have to set up the camera for what's a half second exactly right um this you have to shatter some plates or you have to you have to get this kid on on like a uh one of those like those like bike mounts so they can just ride in place yep yeah and you, and you know like sh- having shot some of these myself for some of the stuff i've done you feel kind of stupid shooting close up sometimes mm-hmm. like it's just usually a ridiculous scenario and you're like okay drop it here no you were like a centimeter off from the focus point so now yeah. drop it here yeah and it's like you feel kind of stupid when you're doing it, but it's all it's all fun mm-hmm. usually when you're shooting like those kinds of things and so, it all compiles together it's all a part of the whole exactly but you have to have that that visual kind of sense or organization in your head before you shoot close-ups it's really ineffective if you don't know what your close-ups need to be obviously this is why they're sometimes done in post as well mm-hmm. um, and shot after the fact but the other close-up that i really wanted to highlight in this scene is a shot of like simply like the front driver's side tire spinning hmm. over blackness. Yeah. And like, then and, all and of it, a sudden it's shot downwards like from if you were looking out the window, you're the kinda, driver, yeah, right? yeah. It's like Styles' perspective of looking out from her driver's side window down at the tire mm-hmm. and because she like sees nothing, like there's not yeah. even road below her. Well, yeah, the the shot that establishes just before that is where the uh, the lines on the on the uh, yes. the road yes. just sort of fade out. They clearly they just dim the lights that they have picking up the or that are being picked up by the reflective paint, mm-hmm. uh, and that's so effective. I mean that that refers to one of my least favorite things, which is there's some driving that we have to do around Southern Ontario on highways that have been under construction for. I don't know, 40 years? Who knows? And they 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 paint the new lanes with this orange paint that is not reflective. Yeah. So if you're driving at night in the rain, you don't know where the lane is. It's very stressful. And it just disappears from you, yeah. like this movie. <laughs> but uh, there's this amazing shot of, like, the tire. Like, clearly it's a shot, like, externally, but the tire's just spinning smoothly over blackness and then the blackness lights up and there's all these like thunderclouds yeah. and lightning like classic lightning it's bolt strikes effect. like the the blue purple lightning yeah yeah which is I love my it. favorite yeah you're just like you're suddenly 
you're on a road and then the road is gone and then you're multiple stories above storm clouds Mm -hmm. and then the connecting shot is very cool too where like you know styles really starts freaking out and then there are all these insert shots of like lights and things like that and they start cutting like tunnel lights yeah they start cutting in shots of the the covered bridge and then they go back to that tire shot and the bridge like comes up to meet it Mm -hmm. which like i'm not still sure how they shot that right like i guess like you just build that part of a bridge and you just yep. you just move it into the shot yep but it's it's very graceful like i think it works really well super smooth yeah. you can tell that it's practical because the car like ramps up on it and like there's like an uh, like a bump that you would have ironed out if it was not mm-hmm. done practically yeah but yeah it's it's a really vibrant scene that's shot in a really unique way and mm-hmm. a lot of it has to be credited to carpenter's vision on how to shoot some of these close-ups uh and these Uh, insert shots yeah that's the thing there's a lot in this script that i think would come out a lot more average if you didn't have director or uh carpenter directing it and knowing the really seemingly simple but again things that he did in halloween that other people have not been able to copy very well because they're 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 making them overwrought or they're adding in too many effects or they're making it too big or too loud yep it's all these simple things simple really simple that that can can build to this goal of just being creepy yeah kind of like tense from the macro perspective what needs to happen before the characters arrive in Hobbs end what needs to be the transition or what does the transition look like Mm -hmm. and you have two things that teach you a lot about the rest of the movie you have the time loop that the kid is forever seemed to be stuck has forever seemed to be stuck on and then you have like the supernatural element which kind of is the first sign of something beyond reality that's happening the I rest believe. yeah the rest is stuff that's pretty easily brushed off as like a bad dream you read some horror books and they're affecting you that way right like yeah. the cop thing mm-hmm. happens yep. before this and stuff mm-hmm. but yeah this scene kind of is what changes your perspective of the movie and allows you to get your brain to open up for what's coming mm-hmm. and i think that this scene is so important for launching you into the second half which is a much weaker film than the first half. Yeah, that's the thing. It does not uh, fulfill the promise set by scenes like this. But if nothing else, you know, this scene is so good at what it does that when we, a couple days ago, we were like, okay, what scene are we going to do? We both had the first scene top of mind. Or yeah. this scene top yeah. of mind was, was oh yeah, it's definitely the, the kid scene, right? There, there are yeah. one or two other options, but this is the one. And we could have talked about something a bit more like juicy in terms of what act like plot driven points mm-hmm. and character driven or we could have notions. stuff with like there are there are puppets there there's there's some really That's cool right. stuff at play later there in the movie effects, but yeah. this is the creepiest scene even there are there are ones with full-on monsters and, and and some gore and things like that but this is this is the juiciest one in terms of i think quality horror and so when it comes down to it why is this scene actually scary i is think it, it, I is think it the relatability part, i think a key part is um uh, the perspective. So much of it is filmed to put you in the car, right? right I don't right, think right. I don't think they have a shot outside the car, off the top of my head, until Styles and Trent get out after they hit the kid. Right. The shot of her like looking outside the car is kind of from outside. It's from car. outside, but that's still it's supposed even, to be her perspective. But you can tell it's not yeah. fully. It's but like so much of it, like the uh, like the shot of the kid's face in the taillights almost reads like a rearview mirror shot yeah it's not yeah. But it's not but it's exactly what a rear view there's so much where would look like there are no wide shots of like the kid cycling next to the car there's nothing like that they don't they never establish a, a, a grander scene of the road and where the kid is and where the car is right no establishing you're, you're basically in the cabin right um through that entire process and then they get out and you get a couple wider shots it sort of takes it down and then you get back in and it gets worse and of course, the character John Trent is asleep through all of this and mm-hmm. wakes up at the other end of the <laughs> covered bridge, which mm-hmm. are incredibly rare, I might add. There's very few covered bridges remaining. There's apparently one in uh, Unionville, Ontario. Yes. Got to make a trip sometime. <laughs> yeah, for the pod. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We should have gone. Should have gone this time. Yeah. Should have recorded at the covered bridge in Unionville. Yeah, we've got in the uh, show notes, there's this great website called moviemaps.org. And it actually, like, it lists all the locations, which are from around Toronto and north of the GTA and Markham. And it also, it lays them all out on a map, too. So you can see how, how kind of spread out they were. So I just looked it up, and 
there are under 200 covered bridges left in Canada. And that number has dwindled significantly. And this was as of 2015. There were at one point uh, as many as 14,000 in the United States. So, and Quebec alone had a thousand covered bridges. And now in Canada as a whole, we're down to 200. A dying breed. Yeah. But very cool movie stuff. Mm -hmm. And very cool to have it sort of immortalized in this. It feels like it fits right into, I think this is all, it's all dressed very well as New England. Yeah. I, I mean, sells, middle America yeah. and some of the towns we have around Southern Ontario, there's not mm -hmm. that big of a difference. And that's why a lot of American production companies choose to come shoot here. Yeah. I mean, for Hobbs End, like Unionville really has that classic Main Street look. Feels like small town America, I think is, is super effective. And yeah, the, the covered bridge is a great way to sort of close that scene, right? Because it allows you to go from day to night. I think in a more seamless way, just yeah, in terms of practicality. Yeah. I wonder if it was in the script or if they arrived on location and were like, yes, use that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You're just tooling around Ontario. That's a good one. Like, I mean, after, yeah, you, props found, to the location after you found the black church, like that's, 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 that's your money shot. Yeah. That yeah. church is insane too. Mm -hmm. So I guess lastly for the scene, it ends with them arriving and Trent waking up and you see them both look over at the sign that says, Welcome to Hobbs End, and she mm -hmm. is just stunned and perplexed that somehow she arrived here. Yeah. So I think this kind of leaves leaves the scene on this note of uncertainty, which is really intriguing for the rest of the second act as well. Yeah, it creates a nice tension in that you've seen truly supernatural phenomena, but Trent hasn't. He's allowed to still be a skeptic for a while and and then he continues to be a skeptic way longer than i would personally um and that's a un that's a unique arc for a horror movie i think as far as showing you something in the character not realizing for so long after you know mm -hmm. yeah there's a there's a pretty big window there but i think i think it's great i think again second and third act don't work as well as you want them to based on the first one but this is a great way to like as as a way to get into Hobbes end into you know this place of the devil and this place this supernatural setting uh I, I i love it and that's why we chose to do this scene mm -hmm. welcome to Hobbes end but outside of this scene uh we do have some shout outs uh some other things in the movies in the movie that we uh, we think are worth mentioning uh tay do you want to go first yeah, we both picked very early scenes, mm -hmm. I guess, to uh, shout <laughs> out. Uh, both right off the top. And so once again, we're keeping everything in this discussion to within that first half hour of the movie yep. still. <laughs> you um, know where all the good stuff is. All the good stuff. So I, I just wanted to shout out the opening credits in the opening sequence of the film uh, that take place over the book in the Mouth of Madness. And I just thought that this was such a clever way of providing those who have already seen the movie with another bit of an, an additional bit of context when you start up the film for that next viewing. And there's so it adds more every time you watch it. And I love the idea of like the manufacturing of something physical. One of my favorite television shows is how it's made. And I just love seeing the process of something come together like this, something physical. And it's really nostalgic to kind of see the manufacturing of a book in this kind of old printing press style way. I think it's a great way to do the opening credits because, number one, you have like this, um, you know, Metallica-inspired music that Carpenter right, that. Carpenter wrote and uh, and and performed part of with some other people. And I think the the juxtaposition of like a book with like this like heavy metal riff behind it is a little goofy. But then, like, once you actually start to see what the cover is, it's a great way to introduce the idea that the movie you're watching is called In the Mouth of Madness. It's about a book called In the Mouth of Madness. It's There, there are going to be layers here. They're going to be self-referential. And eventually you get to the... You'll, you'll understand that, like, you're watching something that is built off of something that is that has destroyed society. So you're saying that the book is as metal as the song? I think that's what Carpenter wants us to think, is okay. that, like, this... This book is a is a is a metal hardcore icon and I think when you're watching the movie the first time I don't I don't think the tone fits but it doesn't you, fit you the rest of the movie either. Yeah. yeah, no, I actually like I think the the music is a lot better in what I'm actually going to make my my shout out which is the do you read Sutter Kane scene. 
Um, well, why don't you take it away with your shout out? That's yeah. what I'll have to say about that. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, um, Carpenter wrote some some heavy metal stuff for that too, and I think it's way more effective. You have these really low sort of like bending notes as um, Sutter Kane's agent walks across this Toronto street dressed up as Manhattan towards um, Trent and uh, and the, the owner of the insurance company he's working for at the time. It's really well cut together. You have these sequences of this big guy. I love this actor who's playing that agent. big coat. Yeah. He's got a big coat. He's got a big like 90s bald head. Um, he's got these great uh, like dual pupil eye contacts. In. Oh, like the amphibian eyes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and he's just slowly making his way across the street holding a massive axe. People are running away. They see him with the axe. He's disheveled. And Trent and the insurance manager are just talking about this next case. And, and there's that, love... hu- that huge window that yeah. gives you all that room to play with. Yeah. He smashes through that window. And uh, it's right after Trent first hears the name Sutter Kane that the axe hits the window. And then he asks him, do you read Sutter Kane? And I love that, like, I, I think there, there's something to this in, in you know, horror, horror books and things like that where, like, invoking a name brings it about just like the devil, just like Voldemort, things like that. So I love the idea that the, the guy's, like, we're having trouble with Arcane, my biggest client for the insurance company. Sutter Kane's gone missing, and Trent's like, who's Sutter Kane? And then the window smashes, and the guy's like, do you read Sutter Kane? Right. And like the, the agent already knows their characters, things like that. I love looking at this scene with full knowledge of the movie. And I think it's the best music in the movie. Yeah. It's, and it's probably one of the most tense scenes. It mm-hmm. may be the most tense scene out of the one we actually chose for our yeah. single serving today. Yeah. I'd say it builds today. really well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of, it has definitely become one of the most iconic Carpenter moments for me. Yeah. I think like, if if they're gonna if they're gonna sell like T-shirts about this movie, it's the line "Do you read Sutter Kane?" Yeah, right? and yeah. hopefully you can get a nice shot because it's only like a two second shot or whatever of the amphibianized. It's not even; it's like a second long. Yeah, and there I love that. Like, yeah, there's the amphibianized. There's a ton of like makeup effects in this movie of like townsfolk who are slowly being disfigured by the 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 forces they're being exposed to. And I love that none of it is consistent. They're not all turning into one type of creature. They're all going off in these weird branching directions. I think it's really cool. And this is a, a nice little like first taste of that. It's almost like only Trent sees the eyes too, right? The other guy, they're like, for there's, him. There's, it's yeah. a shot reverse of, of Trent looking right at him and they get the zoom, the, the close up on, on this guy's uh, contact lenses. Yeah. That's one of the cooler parts of the scene is that the, insurance guy doesn't even really seem to be part of the scene once the window breaks mm-hmm. he seems to be like a side note in the scene the whole time because you're not even well, watching the two of them it's talk. almost like sutter kane underwrote the scene just huh. just just to kick off getting trent to go to hobbs end and, and deliver his book you can you can read into these loops too much yeah it's, it's it was really hard today on the pod to yeah. not like just have all the spoiler terrain ruin yeah. the movie but yeah, no, that's uh, that's definitely my shout out. Um, okay. And then for recommendations, uh, I had a hard time this week. There are a lot of movies that are either direct um, productions of Lovecraft stories uh, done by this great company called the HB Lovecraft Historical Society that just crowd raise and do like low budget productions of his of his stories. But what I think I actually will recommend is called The Empty Man. Uh, it's a 2020 movie by David Pryor. Um, and it has things in common with this movie that I won't go into detail about because it would spoil them. But it's a really cool movie. It's gained like a, in, in as much time as you can, like since it came out in 2020, it's gained a little tiny cult following uh, in that it was very poorly marketed. But once you actually watch it and you see what it's doing and what it has to offer, it's really cool. All that said, you know, my heart goes out to the people who had to cut trailers and market this. I don't know how I would have marketed this movie. So what a mixed bag. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's got so much going on. It's not a perfect movie, but it has some really cool stuff in it. And it, it shares some DNA in terms of what its story is doing with in the mouth of madness. So I definitely recommend it. Hmm. What about you? Well, I also struggled a lot this week to come up with one for some reason. I, you know, there's so many movies that I could have picked that are oh, yeah, Lovecraftian in don't nature. Watch that many horror movies. Yeah, <laughs> just like horror. And I was trying to find like '90s horror that would have been a cool recommendation, but I decided to just throw it back to like a filmmaker who reminds me a lot of like the 
I'm going to do it my way style of John Carpenter, and that's uh, Billy Friedkin. Oh, yeah. So I chose his 1977 film called Sorcerer, which I think is one of the most criminally underseen movies of all time. It's um, so good. Unfortunately, its release date coincided with the release of a somewhat bigger movie called Star Wars in 1977. <laughs> so it uh, didn't see the light of day for most people. It's a remake of the 1953 uh, Clouseau, or Henry... George Clouseau movie called Wages of Fear. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, I shouldn't really even get into what the plot is, but it's about a group of men who have to drive a truck full of nitroglycerin through the jungle in order to make enough money to escape the country that they've all went, wound up in due to yeah. crime. Yeah, or you got, you got Roy Scheider. And yes, Roy Scheider's in the movie. And it's a, it's a masterclass it. in tension. Yeah, it's one of like the most tense movies uh, imaginable that doesn't fall under the horror genre specifically. Um, so by no means am I recommending a horror here. It, this is a thriller, tension, action film, crime movie maybe even you could venture into. Mm-hmm. But highly, highly recommend Sorcerer, one of my all-time favorites, of the, especially of the 70s, one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I first watched this movie with a, a mutual friend, had this movie series that he was doing, going through lists and watching things he had never seen before. And I think I watched it on... Do you have a steel book of this? I No, just the Blu-ray. It's just the Blu-ray, but it was your Blu-ray we watched. That was, a, that was a good watch. And here's hoping for that 4K sweet version of this. Yeah, that'd be nice. There's as nice great, as actually, that Blu-ray is. If I can find it, there's a phenomenal little essay on Sorcerer uh, that I read recently. Because uh, uh, Friedkin's actually pretty active on Twitter. He's a good follow if you're on there. Uh, and he... He does just retweet a lot of things that are talking about how good his movies are, but uh, occasionally there's some really good writing, and I think I've got this essay saved somewhere. So watch Sorcerer, check out this essay. By all means, yeah, that sounds interesting. I'm intrigued mm-hmm. to read it too. But that's uh, that's our first uh, October, our first horror um, for, for the Halloween month in the bag. Uh, to wrap it up again, as always, we'd love for you to review the podcast on iTunes if uh, you're an iTunes user. Send us an email to sscpod at gmail.com if you have a one-line review of a movie that we talked about that you watched afterwards or beforehand, or a different scene, if there's a different scene that you would have covered. By all means, send us a little short synopsis of why you think it's cool. And lastly, I also want to just mention every Sunday, if you're not on Instagram or if you're not active on Instagram, uh, give us a follow at sscpod. Every Sunday, we do a roundup of what everyone watched that week. It's a fun time. You get to see what other people are doing. You get to get some recommendations. We'd love to see you there. So, uh, yeah, uh, future Tim will, in a couple seconds, tell you what we're going to talk about in the next episode so you can watch it ahead of time. Take it away. Hi, everyone. Our next episode is going to be on John Carpenter's 1982 horror masterpiece, The Thing. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Uh, We hope you enjoyed this movie, and I sincerely hope that you read Sutter Kane. Because I think it's worth expanding your horizons and uh, and taking the chance on uh, on going a little crazy. Anarchy, everyone.